0: Well, good evening, let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, and if you don't have a Bible tonight, as always, if you'll raise your hand, one of our ushers will come and put a Bible in your hand that you can read along tonight, and if you need that Bible, you keep it as your own. Romans chapter 13, we're going to cover chapters 13 and 14 tonight. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you'll bless our Bible study this evening. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us encouragement how we need it. We ask, Lord, that you pour out your spirit. Let him be our teacher tonight. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. God has established three institutions and only three the J.C.s and the Kiwanas and the Toastmasters and even the Booster Club may be fine organizations, but none of them are divinely inspired. They're human inventions. There are only three God-ordained institutions. In Genesis chapter 2, God established marriage and family. In Acts chapter 2, He birthed the church. And in Genesis chapter 9, He originated human government. When Noah exited the ark, God gave basic principles to humans so that we could rule ourselves. Before the global flood, God saw anarchy and chaos and unbridled evil in the world, so much so that it convinced him that man needed some form of self-rule to avoid another judgment. And so God instituted government. Our Lord Jesus also affirmed the role of human government. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus laid out humanity's dual responsibilities. He said, Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Our lives belong to God, but we also have an obligation to the earthly government. And now 25 years later, Paul is still chewing on the ramifications of Jesus' statement. In fact, his phraseology in verse 7 even sounds like Jesus. Romans 13 explains the Christian's duty to both God and country. Well, the chapter begins, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And notice the key word here, the authorities that exist. It's not just that government in general is God's idea, but the rulers that currently exist are there as a result of God's determination. You thought the president and the governor and the congressman were elected. But God is sovereign. He is behind the scenes pulling the strings. God is the one who ultimately sets up and brings down administrations. Though he disapproves of their evil, This means that God does allow the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Saddams, as well as the Bushes and the Obamas and the Trumps, to rise to power. God has his reasons. After the Babylonians' wicked despot, Nebuchadnezzar, sacked the holy city of Jerusalem, it was the prophet of God, Jeremiah, who still referred to him as God's servant. God orchestrates the political stage for his own purposes. See, God knows that human government is imperfect, but apparently even a flawed government is better than no government at all. God sees the big picture. Both democracy and dictatorship are better than anarchy. You remember Judges 21 verse 25 describes the darkest time in Israel's history. We're told, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Certainly, the best form of government is a theocracy, a government where the true God sits on the throne. And the Bible predicts that one day the earth will be ruled by King Jesus. But until then, any form of government is better than no government at all. Remember who was on the throne in Rome when Paul wrote this letter? I mean, just down the street from the Roman church, Caesar Nero was a certifiable nut job. Nero set himself up as God. He killed his wife and son to consolidate his power. He threw the Christians to the lions and burned them at the stake to light his drunken orgies. Nero was the one who set fire to downtown Rome to make room for his expansive building projects so he could fulfill his ego. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. The Caesar was a madman. And yet Paul is crystal clear concerning God's will that despite the personality holding the office, Christians need to respect and obey the governing authorities. Paul continues his instructions. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Building code inspectors and fire marshals, all kinds of authorities can seem tedious and bothersome and irrelevant. I actually once had a Gwinnett County code enforcement official write me a ticket for parking a couple of my cars in the pine straw beside my house. I was livid. It's my pine straw. But I ended up complying for as long as the law isn't immoral or unbiblical, even if I think it's stupid, which I do sometimes, I need to submit to the governing authorities. In those rare cases where the law of, go- the, law of the land Conflicts with the law of God. The Bible teaches we must obey God rather than man, but that's a rare situation. Generally speaking, God uses human government to keep civilization civil, and that's a good thing. Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. And I remind myself of this whenever I'm cruising down the interstate. Hey, as long as I'm driving the speed limit, I've got nothing to worry about. My driving is no terror. It's terror-free. You become terrified only when you break the law. He says, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Well, then do what's good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil." Generally speaking, legislatures and policemen don't pick on good, law-abiding citizens. Laws are written to restrain the bad guys, not hassle the good guys. You know, the flood in Noah's day proved that God is faithful to punish evildoers. But after Genesis 9, the tool that God used to help with this task was human government. Here in verse 4, notice, Paul calls our police officers God's minister. And notice he bears the sword, or in our day packs the glock. God issues the policeman a weapon. One day Jesus will return to earth to visibly rule the world and right all wrongs, but until then, God restrains evil and punishes evildoers and maintains an orderly society through the institute through the instrument of human government. Notice verse five. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. In other words, our motivation for observing the law shouldn't be just to avoid punishment. We should respect the God-given authority the law represents, whether that law is a speed limit or a building code or a lame brain prohibition about parking your car in your own pine straw. Still can't get over that. If believers can't submit to the authorities we can see, how can we tell others to submit to God's authority, an authority we can't see? Trust me, when a praise the Lord bumper sticker goes sailing down the interstate at 90 miles per hour, it is a sorry witness. Once there was a policeman, he was making some extra money after hours. He was enforcing the dress code at this ritzy restaurant. When a man walked in with a jacket but with no necktie, It was against protocol. The police officer refused to let him enter. Well, the rebellious patron, he got mad. He goes back to his car. He wraps the jumper cables around his neck. He comes back in and he shouts, hey, now I'm wearing a necktie. The cop glares at him and says, okay, but you better not start anything. (laughs) Here Paul is saying, just obey the governing authorities and you'll avoid a lot of trouble. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Now, not only does Paul consider a police officer God's minister, but believe it or not, he uses the same term for a tax collector. Imagine an IRS agent, God's minister, which reminds me, did you hear about the guy who walked into the IRS office and sat down when the receptionist asked him if she could help him? He responded. He said, no. I just want to see the people I've been working for all these years. Hey, I hate paying taxes, but I do it. For God has commanded me to pay the taxes that I owe. Paul says, Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Notice the two terms here, taxes and customs. The word translated taxes refers to an annual tax, similar to our income tax or perhaps a real estate tax, while custom referred to a tax on goods, sort of like our sales tax. And Paul says that we should pay them both. But Pastor Sandy, what if the government spends our tax money foolishly and immorally? Are we still supposed to pay the taxes? And the answer to that is yes. You think for a moment the taxes paid to Nero went to opening Christian schools and old folks' homes? No way. You're dreaming. Paul knew at least a portion of Rome's tax base was spent on wild orgies and pagan idolatry. Paul knew that their taxes paid for circuses and carnivals, and yet he told the Romans to pay their taxes anyway. You know, I signed my 1040 form. I put it in the envelope. I seal it up. I drop it into the mailbox. And from then on, God holds the politicians responsible for how that money gets spent. I've done my duty. My God-given responsibility is to pay my taxes. You know, historians tell us that Roman taxes were more exorbitant than even what Americans pay today. And yet early, early Christians paid every single dime they owed. Second century church leader Tertullian once said, What Rome lost by the Christians refusing to bestow gifts on their pagan temples, they gained by their conscientious payment of taxes. God has ordained government, and it's funded by us. Verse eight. 8, O no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. When I paid off my house, a great burden rolled off my shoulders. What a blessing it was. I now owe no man anything but to love one another. Of course, some Christians see this verse as a blanket prohibition against all borrowing. And yet the context of the verse is about paying taxes, not avoiding debt. Our taxes are a debt that we are all obligated to pay. And here's what people do. They make a huge deal out of the first half of the verse, owe no man anything, and they ignore the later, latter half of the verse, except to love one another. Certainly pay what you owe. Better to not even go into debt, but remember, our debt of love is never paid. For if we love other people the way God has loved us, we'll be perpetual debtors. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Here Paul lists the second tablet of the Ten Commandments how we're to treat our fellow man. You know, realize the commandments and law were given because God wanted the Hebrews to know what love looked like. But once Jesus put love in our hearts, the written rules became obsolete. Love fulfilled the law. Real love won't lust after a neighbor's wife or kill another person or steal or lie. It will give, not take. Verse 11, And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You know, God intends for his church, both in the first century and in the 21st century, to live our lives in light of an overshadowing truth. Jesus is coming back. This is what Paul and his first century pals believed, and this is what the church today should believe. You know, once a little boy, you heard... The grandfather clock malfunctioned. It chimed 15 times. The boy shouted, Mommy, Mommy, it's later than it's ever been before. And that's certainly true of today. We see the signs of the end times all around us a proliferation of natural disasters, the rebirth of the nation Israel, globalism, unity in Europe, hostility toward the Jews, a desire to rebuild a third temple in Jerusalem, etc., etc. But wherever we are on God's timeline, there's one certainty. It is later than it's ever been before. Time is running out. If for no other reason than we're getting older, our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And if you're going to make a splash for Jesus, better start now. Wait much longer and it'll be too late. Well, Verse 12 tells us, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. What if Jesus returns? Do you want to be drunk? What if the last trumpet blows and you're found flirting with a woman who's not your wife? What if Jesus appears while you're on the phone stirring up some juicy gossip? Brothers and sisters, It's way past time for us to get serious about living for Jesus. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. You know, we've been talking about this on Sunday mornings. To put on Jesus means to develop a new identity, a new mindset, to gear our lives around spiritual pursuits, not sinful lusts. Christianity, in a nutshell, is make no provision for the flesh. That is, cast off old habits and sinful desires and put on Christ. Live your life dead to sin and alive to God. Well, let me begin chapter 14 with an old southern expression of which I'm really fond. Here it is. A bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the effort? In other words, there are some battles not worth fighting. And such was the case in the church at Rome. Believers in Jesus were embroiled in battles over non-essential, supplemental issues. They were minoring on the majors, and they were majoring on the minors. They had lost focus on what really counts. In chapter 14, Paul speaks to two types of Christians. He calls the first type the weaker brother. Now, in Paul's mind, this is the self-righteous. This is a straight-laced guy. He works hard at measuring up. He believes in Jesus, but he takes pride in his own discipline and abstinence. Thus, he minds his religious manners. He never diverges too far from tradition. He's into keeping rules. Whereas the stronger brother, in Paul's estimation, is free from the law. He's free from tradition. He knows that he's right with God by faith and faith alone. In Christ, compliance to custom is no longer required. His strong faith in Jesus frees him up to be led by God's Spirit. He trusts in Jesus, not in his own efforts. It's ironic, you look at these two brothers and you might get confused. One brother's more lax compared to the Spartan discipline of the other brother. But from Paul's perspective, the brother trusting in God's grace is stronger in his faith than the guy who's trying to build a religious resume that will secure God's favor. See, real strength is based on faith, not our own fortitude. It's a reliance on Christ, not a compliance to the rules. And so for the weaker brother, it's easier on his pride to point out reasons God should love him than it is to simply admit he's a sinner and in need of God's grace. And here's what's sure to happen when there's a weaker brother and a stronger brother, the conformist. The weaker brother sees his nonconformist brother, and he wonders why he's so lax, while the nonconformist accuses his weaker brother of legalism. And this is what was happening in the church at Rome. Paul writes chapter 14 to put out the fire. Verse 1, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. In other words, don't entertain trivial disputes over minutia. He says, For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, the city of Rome had a wholesale grocery known as the shambles. There you could purchase quality meats at a cut-rate price. And church members were shopping the shambles. The shambles, though, got its meat from pagan temples idolaters would come with their sacrifices the priest would offer them to the idol and then they would use the extra cuts to turn a profit for their false prophets stronger believers weren't bothered by tainted meat in their minds meat was just meat their standing with god was based on the faith they put in christ not the food they put on their plate these libertarians felt free to cook out But the weaker brothers, those who trusted in the do's and don'ts, were appalled at the thought of eating anything that had been desecrated to an idol. This was guilt by association. To them, eating meat was equal to worshiping idols. To the vegetarians, the ground round was out of bounds. Now, obviously, most of us have never agonized over the spiritual implications of what we purchase from the meat market. This seems like an irrelevant issue to us. But how we handle these non-essentials in church life is terribly important. Usually, Christians divide and fellowships fracture, not over the major issues. Rather, they split over minor concerns. We tend to agree on the essentials, but it's the non-essentials that cause us to polarize. We get picky, and then we pick on each other. Our judgmental spirit spoils the sweetness of our unity and our fellowship. As Paul puts it in verse 1, we tend to get distracted in disputes over doubtful things. And so he says in verse 3, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls." I am not your Lord, and you are not my Lord. When it comes to non-essentials, we all answer to Jesus, not each other. You know, we're all at different stages of maturity. There may be healthy reasons why a weaker brother holds to a conviction that you felt free to lay aside. Maybe you felt free to drink a glass of wine with your meal. But the weaker brother can't. He's an alcoholic. He may never be free to drink. The guy who can shouldn't look down his nose at the guy who can't, and the guy who can't shouldn't feel superior to the guy who can. I love the tail end of verse 4. It says, Indeed, he will will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. You know, when I started Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, I was a 22-year-old kid. I sported a grungy beard and wore flip-flops most of the time. My only collared shirt was black with pink flamingos. And I'm sure there were folks who visited Calvary Chapel. They took one look at me, and they figured I'd never make it. And of course, the verdict is still out. But 38 years in, and God has made me stand. Hey, never judge a guy based on non-essentials. If the Almighty God is in his corner, no matter how different he might be from you, God can make him stand. Well, notice verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. It wasn't just diet, but it was days that troubled the believers in the Roman church. Do we worship on Saturday or do we worship on Sunday? Do we keep the Old Testament feasts or have they become obsolete? And Paul is saying when it comes to these non-essentials, there's no right or wrong. There's no black or white it's a gray matter. It boils down to a personal preference. As Paul pens, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Here's a list of gray matters. Can you drink a glass of wine at dinner or a beer after mowing the lawn? Can a Christian chew tobacco or smoke a cigar? Can a godly woman wear a two-piece swimsuit? Can a man grow long hair and sport an earring and still be pleasing to God? And what about tattoos? Gray matters also appear in family life. Is it more spiritual to breastfeed or bottle feed? How should a Christian educate his kids? Homeschool? Christian school? Public school? Is it right or wrong to put your elderly parents in a nursing home? Or does God want you to bring them home with you to live out their days? And... What about Santa Claus? I'm saying these are all gray matters. Worship styles and church etiquette are also subject to personal preference. More gray matters. Is it pleasing to God to play rock and roll music on a Sunday morning, or should we be singing hymns? Can a person wear shorts to church? Should communion be taken weekly or quarterly? Can we play cards at the church retreat? And gray matters even appear in doctrine. Baptism, by immersion or by sprinkling? Will the rapture occur before or after the tribulation? You know, good Christians line up on both sides of these arguments. And of course, the granddaddy of all church splitters is a believer really once saved, always saved. See, these are all gray matters. And yet to some people, gray matters really matter. Paul says that peace is found in the lordship of Jesus. Rather than me telling you what you should be doing or you telling me what I should be doing, it's up to each of us to report directly to Jesus. The Holy Spirit leads each believer at his or her own pace and toward their own direction. Of course, if an issue is squarely addressed in the Scriptures, our position is clear. We stick to the script. Black and white is easy. But with gray matters, we need to leave some latitude. Don't become dogmatic. Let's leave each other some room to grow, even if we disagree. Well, he continues in verse 6. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. In other words, one man worships on Sunday. Another man worships on Saturday. If their worship is sincere, God is pleased. What matters to God is not the day, but the worship. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. One man is grateful to God for the burger that he eats. Another man thinks that by abstaining from meat, he's bringing glory to God. What matters in both cases is that God gets glorified. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die... We are the Lord's. We will all answer to the Lord Jesus, not to each other. Jesus gets the final say. The Lord is our judge, not you or me. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus paid the ultimate price to be Lord of the church. He died and rose and lived again. Before any of us usurp his place to judge a brother, we need to take a long look at ourselves. Do we really want to take over as Lord? Jesus has won that right, not you or me. We need to let Jesus be Lord. You know, my fourth-born child was a late walker. Thankfully, he eventually caught up. He played college baseball. But the reason he crawled for so long is that he lived in a house with three other siblings. The poor little fellow didn't have room to walk without getting knocked down. And you see, this is what keeps a lot of babes in Christ from learning to walk. We don't give them room to grow. They don't feel the freedom to make a mistake. They're afraid that if they mess up, they'll get knocked down, so they just crawl. Real spiritual growth involves some risk. It's easier to sit back and be told what to do than it is to step out and learn to follow Jesus for yourself verse 10 tells us, But why do you judge your brother? For why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Every one of us is accountable to God. Believers will be judged differently than unbelievers, but Jesus will be the judge of us all. That's why it's foolish for us to judge each other. Always remember the motto in essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Verse 13 Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. A man was talking on the telephone, and we're allowed to hear one side of the conversation. He says, yes. Yeah, Gladys, she's awful difficult. I know I ought to be more firm, but it's hard. You know how she is. Yes, I remember you warned me. You told me she was a hard woman who would make my life miserable. You begged me not to marry her. You were right. You want to talk to her? Okay. Well, the man calls into the other room. Hey, Gladys, it's your mother on the phone. Oh, boy. Poor Gladys. It's one thing to get shot down by an enemy, but to get zinged by your own mother? Well, the same is true in the church. We expect the world to try and destroy us, but when the stumbling block comes from our own family, it's terrible. Paul warns us not to participate in any activity that will tempt or mislead A brother or sister in Christ. Verse fourteen. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now take music for example. You know, the church used to complain about rock music. They called it evil. But what's the difference between a C note played on a grand piano or a C note played on an electric guitar? Obviously, there's no difference. What makes any form of music good or evil is the message that it communicates and the spirit in which it's played. Paul is convinced that nothing in the world is intrinsically evil. It becomes good or bad. A thing becomes good or bad by how it's used. Its use determines whether it's moral or immoral. One man can use an object to the glory of God. Another man can become ensnared by that same object. The problem is not the object, but the man. He says, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. You know, a thing becomes sinful when it causes me to get distracted and fumble away my faith or when my example causes another brother to stumble in his faith. If it causes a fumble or a stumble, I'm not free to do it. Listen to the following paraphrase of verses 20 and 21 All food is good, but it can turn bad if you use it badly, if you use it to trip others up and send them sprawling. When you sit down to a meal, your primary concern should not be to feed your own face, but to share the life of Jesus. Don't you dare let a piece of God blessed food Become an occasion of soul poisoning. Listen to that again. Don't you let a piece of God-blessed food become an occasion of soul poisoning. Once a TV repairman hated bringing his work home. As a result, he never properly installed the satellite dish on top of his house. Even when the arm on the dish broke in the storm, he failed to make the needed repairs. Well, when a new neighbor moved in next door, he knew he was living to a television repairman. And so he installed his dish exactly like his lazy neighbor. After careful study, he even broke off the same part. He was foiled by a faulty example. See, it just goes to prove that we're an example whether we know it or not, whether we intend it or not. And the same is true in God's family. A weaker brother knows you're a Christian. And he sees you exercise a liberty. He follows your example, but ends up falling into bondage. His faith has been sabotaged by your liberty. Instead of a brother being a brother, instead of you being a brother, you've become a stumbling block, and I would say a real blockhead. Was exercising your freedom really worth it? There once was a man who always had a bottle of wine with his Thanksgiving dinner. One Thanksgiving, he found himself bone dry, so he bundled himself up in his heavy coat. He headed down to the corner liquor store. Well, as he walked down the street, he heard someone following. He turned around. It was his little boy. And it hit him where he was leading his son. He turned around and headed home. You know, I've heard it said, The shepherd paces the flock to accommodate the weakest lamb. The shepherd paces the flock to accommodate the weakest lamb. We can destroy, with our food or drink, a brother for whom Christ died. If you're truly free, it's easy to restrain. It's as easy to restrain as it is to indulge. Well, verse 16: "Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit." Again, the Romans were upset over died in days, but both issues were of little consequence in the big scheme of things. What matters in the kingdom of God are matters of the heart, right living, and peaceful relationships, and joy inspired by the Holy Spirit. Phil Taylor grew up in the 1960s in an all-white church in the Deep South. I can identify. Phil writes of his experience. He says, I don't know how we missed it, While King marched on Selma and an entire race cried out for justice, I heard sermons against rock and roll, the Beatles, miniskirts, and long hair. But I never heard them mention racism or injustice or intolerance or hatred or bigotry. Those are the things that God hates. See, churches always have a penchant for missing the forest for the trees. We fail to see the obvious. Just as Jesus said, we strain at a gnat, and yet we swallow the camel. God, please open our eyes. And then verse 18 tells us, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. See, you've confused your priorities if you hurt a brother just to flaunt a freedom or to make a statement. Our priorities should always be building up and encouraging one another. Remember, loving a brother is always more important than you proving a point. Verse 20 tells us, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. God's mission in the world is to save souls and grow believers, not indulge selfish Christians who care more about making a point than they do helping others grow. Our fellowship is more precious than your freedom. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, he used to enjoy a good cigar from time to time. He was quite proud of the fact he smoked cigars. Once he was questioned about his smoking, he replied, I never smoke in excess. When someone asked him what constituted excess, he facetiously replied, never more than two at a time. Spurgeon felt the liberty to light up a stogie until one day he saw a billboard advertising cigars. And on this billboard it read, smoke the brand that Spurgeon smokes. From that day onward, he laid them down and never smoked another cigar. He didn't want a believer to become addicted to a vice because of his example. Well, Paul sums it up in verse 20. All things are indeed pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. If you feel the freedom to do a thing that causes a brother to stumble, then keep it to yourself. You're not free to flaunt that freedom. He says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. See, a believer's freedom can become a sin if he or she doesn't exercise it lovingly and responsibly. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith whatever is not from faith is sin. If your freedom causes someone else to violate his or her conscience, then it becomes a sin. Don't be proud or cavalier, an exercise of freedom, without being sensitive to the people you could affect. If the brother's conscience is going to condemn him, respect his conscience above your own freedom. Again, two rules apply to our participation in a gray matter. First, Does it cause me to fumble away my faith? If I can't do it in faith to God's glory, I'm not free to participate. And then second, will it cause another Christian to violate their conscience and stumble in their faith? If it causes a fumble or a stumble, don't go there. Let's stay humble. We all need to grow. The weaker brother should grow in his understanding of grace while the stronger brother should grow in his love for other people. And there we have Romans chapters 13 and 14. God bless you. Have a safe drive home. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Lord, help us to walk in love and walk in faith. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.